News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the manhunt in Saskatchewan is over. RCMP in that province confirming that the suspect in the mass stabbing there was taken into custody yesterday. But then we heard that Miles Sanderson was pronounced dead shortly after being taken into custody. The question now is, what happened? We're also learning more about the victims and how their families are coping with this horrific tragedy. Global News reporter Nathaniel Dove joins us from Saskatchewan with more on this. Good morning, Nathaniel. Good morning. How are some of those families doing? I know that you've been hearing from them and talking to them. Very emotional, to say the least. The past few days have been harrowing. Mm -hmm. Uh, A false alarm here at James Smith Cree Nation just a few days ago. Uh, Potentially another sighting of of suspect, though we now know uh, he wasn't here. Uh, The families I've been speaking to, one says they were crying when they found out uh, about the arrest, crying with relief. Another one uh, saying they're feeling happy and also that they've forgiven the Sandersons. I was speaking to uh, Ivor Wayne Burns, the older brother of Gloria Burns, who died early Sunday morning at James Smith Cree Nation. He says he's forgiven the Sandersons because he doesn't want to be resentful, he doesn't want to be hateful, he wants to move forward and pave the future for the children. Another brother of uh, of Gloria, Daryl, says he feels safer now. His family has spent the past few days in a hotel, not at James Smith Cree Nation, uh, they're now looking forward to returning and uh, to returning uh, Gloria to James Smith Cree Nation for her burial uh, and uh, hopefully having some, some calm ahead in the coming days. Well, that sounds like it has been incredibly stressful for these families, staying in hotels and dealing with these emergency alerts going on. What about those that we've heard about that are injured in hospital, Nathaniel? There is some good news on that front. 18 people total were injured, 17 went to hospital, We know as of late yesterday, 10 people remain in hospital, uh, two in critical condition. That's the lowest number yet. Uh, Hopefully uh, a sign of the the healing to come for the two communities of James Smith and uh, and Weldon. And so what is going on then in terms of remembering those victims? I understand there's been some candlelight vigils as well. There was vigils in uh, nearby towns of uh, Prince Albert and Saskatoon. Uh, a few prayers uh, and speeches given. Very, very somber events. It's, we're still, of course, only four days out. I think many people uh, here and nearby are just trying to still make sense and uh, and calm down and, and find some, some peace after this. It's been, uh, uh, with not knowing where Miles Sanderson was, a lot of people have been telling me how afraid they were. Uh, Ruby Works, uh, the friend, Wes Peterson, the victim uh, in Weldon, uh, says she's barely been leaving her house, barely been sleeping uh, since her, her good friend, who she described as uncle, oh passed away. So I think you know, the day is coming. We'll, we'll, we'll find more people relaxing and maybe speaking more freely and coming to terms with what happened. Right. So today you can imagine a lot less, um, lot less of that anxiety in the community. Definitely, yes. Uh, some of these uh, bodies are, are still with the coroner service. Uh, as Autopsies are still being performed. Uh, speaking to the Burns family, they were just speaking to... Uh, home yesterday about what would happen uh, with their uh, their their Gloria. Um, so details still emerging, I think, for everyone. And as, as those uh, come into focus, uh, the, the families, I think, the survivors will be able to, to move on. All right. Well, thank you so much for the update. Thank you very much for having me.
That's Nathaniel Dove, our global news reporter in Saskatchewan, talking about really how the victims' families are dealing with the news that the manhunt is over. How did it end then? Well, there are some details that are coming out. A great article in the Globe and Mail newspaper this morning that kind of, lay, kind of lays out what uh, we believe happened yesterday. They said uh, authorities received a 911 call at about just after 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon. They had a report of a break and enter near a town called Waka. And then they thought the person who was calling 911 said that they believed that that was Miles Sanderson who was armed with a knife and standing outside the residence trying to break in. So from what you know, the reports are is that the scene was actually at that point fled in a, a stolen white Chevrolet avalanche. Uh, police laid chase to that. There were more than 20 calls of potential sightings of Miles Sanderson in that white Chevy Avalanche. And then an RCMP officer also spotted the vehicle. And according to this report in the Globe and Mail, they're saying that vehicle at that point was traveling at about 150 kilometers per hour. Obviously, that was highly suspicious. Somebody who seemed like they were trying to get away from something. And that is when, you know, the police laid into pursuit. At that point, we don't really fully know exactly what happened. All we know is that, you know, police put out the comment that they had captured Miles Sanderson, taken him into custody. Shortly after that, we heard that he had died, you know, not long, had been pronounced dead right after that. So what happened then? Was it a result of, of you know, the chase? Was, did something happen after the chase? Was it a result of being taken into custody? Still a lot of questions about you know, what happened in that case. There will be hopefully more information to come on that and we will have that for you. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about False Creek, shall we? Because, you know, there's a lot of concern about False Creek in terms of its health and and how well it is doing. And there's a lot of people who are dedicated to spending their time to making sure it gets cleaned up. In fact, Volunteers and scientists are just about finished collecting water samples as part of a six-day what they call bio-blitz in False Creek. So why are they doing this? Well, they're working towards cleaning up that inlet. So to find out more about it, we're joined now by Kate Henderson, who's the researcher for BioBlitz, and Kara Lieb, who's a senior campaigner for the False Creek Friends Society. Thanks to both of you for being here this morning. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Uh, Kira, let me start with you. Why is it so important to clean up False Creek? How is it? Well, we're not sure how it is. I think that's the biggest issue, and that's why False Creek Friends has partnered with the Hakai Institute to find out. We know that there's lots of people who think it's not doing very well, and, you know, it probably isn't doing very well from some of the data that um, was collected in the past. And we know that there's lots of people who don't think that swimming there is a good idea, and I probably would agree with them right now. But we also know from even some of the information that we collected for the BioBlitz, including photos of, um, of wildlife or marine life under in the water, that it's not possibly doing as badly as we think it is. We just need to know how to fix it. And that's why Hakai scientists are so important to work with right now to find out what is wrong with it and, and where we start. So, Kate, tell me a bit about BioBlitz. How does this work? Yeah, so a BioBlitz is an intensive effort by a group of scientists, and, and actually often it includes mostly community scientists. Um, in this case, we, we partnered with community scientists, and we brought in scientists um, from the Hakai Research Institute on Quadra Island and in Victoria, along with 
scientists from UBC, um, another company called Biologica Environmental Services, and we kind of descended on False Creek to try to find out as much about the life of False Creek in a very short amount of time. So bio meaning life and blitz meaning something really speedy. Okay, so then what is this process like then? How do you collect samples? Where do you collect them from? And then what happens? Yeah, so our scientists took a variety of samples. Um, Now, our project actually uh, encompasses the historical shoreline of False Creek. Um, So that goes from the mouth um, between Second Beach and Kitts Beach, all the way up past Science World and including False Creek Flats. And and it goes out beyond the edges of False Creek as we know it as the seawall. So we were doing um, terrestrial surveys, so looking for birds, plants, insects, and then Our team specifically was focused on the water of False Creek. So we were taking water samples, looking for those microscopic um, plants and animals that live in the water called plankton. We were looking, we we sunk traps down at night and turned lights on to attract creatures to come into them. Those are called light traps. We put plates in the water for two months and looked to see what would start growing on those. And then this week we had a a boat in the water um, actually putting kind of like a small bucket and scooping up the sediment. And then we had scientists looking through the sediment to try to find out what kinds of life we could find. And we were doing that at many different places between Science World and Bird Bridge. Okay, so then where, like when will that information come back to you? When will you find out kind of what you found? Yeah, so people can look to see what we found already on the iNaturalist app. This is the community science um, portal that's run by the Smithsonian Institution. And all of the um, observations that have been put in so far are collected on that app. And heck, I will be adding to that with the results that we find, um, as well as producing a report, which we expect to be finished hopefully near the end of the year. Um, And we'll be releasing that the results of our efforts back to the community, our whole intention in this very collaborative project with the False Creek Friends Society and the City of Vancouver is to produce this picture of False Creek so that the community can then take that information and use it for planning and stewardship, rehabilitation and and monitoring going forward. All right. So then Kira, what happens with this? Like what, what role does False Creek Friends Society take with this, with this amount of information? Well, I think the main thing that we're looking to do is engage with the community. I mean, we need the science to tell us where to engage with the community and what behaviors we need to help people change. And that's what the information from the from the um, Hakai Institute's BioBlitz is going to tell us. And then we can take that work and we can apply it to different things. So we can incentivize people, even small things. Don't throw your pop can in, in, in Falls Creek. Don't throw your bicycle in Falls Creek. We've, we found a few of those. But on the bigger scale, you know, if there are things that we could do around reducing the pollution, working with the city to reduce the pollution of detergents going in the water, pharmaceuticals going in the water, all of those kinds of things are what we're hoping we will be able to start working with community to change behavior on. And hopefully doing a little bit more advocacy work with um, changing some policies too. Those are, those are all kind of in the mix. At the end of the day, False Creek Friends is really hoping to have the, um, the False Creek area declared as some sort of protected environment, you know, whether that's a marine, um, an urban marine park or something along those lines that we can really start to kind of um, uh, create a jewel of a, an environment around Falls Creek and um, help it revitalize. A lot of what you described there, though, I feel like, do we need rules around that or do we just need to all pay a little bit more attention to how we are treating the waters of Falls Creek? 
I think it's both. I mean, I, you know, when, when we were talking to people all through the last six days, people said they had no idea that there was anything alive in False Creek. And when we showed them pictures of spiny dogfish and, and starfish, it changes how they think about it. So it's not, yes, you're right, we probably don't need rules around don't throw your pop can, but we need people to think about not throwing their pop can. And we need people to think about what they put in their own waters at home and how that makes its way sometimes into False Creek. All of those things have to uh, will matter in in um, changing behavior. Now, Kate, you mentioned that this research is available for people who want to take a look at it. How can we do that? Yeah, so iNaturalist is the is an app that people can put on their phones, or they can look at the website iNaturalist.org, and they can look for our project, which is called the False Creek Bio Blitz. All right, sounds good. Thanks to both of you for being with us this morning. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. A quick happy birthday to my son, Merritt, who turns nine today. (laughs) That's adorable. (laughs) Happy birthday to him. Thanks so much. That is Kate Henderson, researcher for BioBlitz, and Caroline, who's a senior campaigner for the False Creek Friends Society, talking about the work that is being done to just find out how much of a thriving ecosystem False Creek really is. This is Mornings with Simi. Boosting the Climate Action Tax Credit Payment, capping rent increases, just a couple of the measures announced by the B.C. government yesterday in an effort to help you fight inflation in your budget. But how will this specifically put money in your pocket? Well, to talk more about these measures, we're joined now by Selena Robinson, the Minister of Finance. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. So how do these measures that you announced yesterday, how will they, what will it mean for families? Well, this is our government's next step in helping people with current cost of living because of global inflation. Um, And so the BC uh, Family Benefit, which is a a benefit that that families uh, get, uh, 75% of families will receive a full and partial benefit in their uh, January uh, to March payment. Uh, And that will, again, be a little bit of a boost to help families with additional additional costs as a result of that. Similar thing with the Climate Action Tax Credit. Uh, that's about 85% of BC residents receive already a full and partial payment. Um, and so there'll be a one-time increase um, in their October payment. Uh, we also announced uh, last week uh, the um, Student and Family Affordability Fund uh, at schools, uh, $60 million going out to school districts to help uh, families that might need a little bit of help with school supplies or meal programs so that there's supports there for families. And of course, uh, we have the ICBC rebate uh, back in the summer. So really, since, you know, from July to March, there are some uh, additional supports uh, for families uh, to help them through this uh, challenging inflationary period. Yeah, let's talk about the rent increase, uh, you know, capping that at 2% there. Obviously, that is geared towards people who are renting. Uh, What about the people on the other side of that equation? There's homeowners. What about the landlords, perhaps, who still need to keep up their properties? What does this do for them? Yeah, yeah. This is this is a really challenging time, and we recognize that. And we've certainly heard uh, from through landlord BC and through other landlords about those challenges. And we certainly heard from renters in this province uh, that were seeking a zero increase. Um, And with inflation um, at uh, if we if we didn't put the cap in, it would be over five percent increase, which would also be um, you know untenable for so many renters. It would be very very difficult. And I think it's important to remind listeners that when we formed government, the the formula for um, for the the cap on rent, the the formula for for rent increase was two percent plus 
um, a CPI plus inflation. Uh, we eliminated that two, that automatic 2% that was under the BC Liberals, so it's a just inflation. But we're seeing, you know, inflation so high, we couldn't... Uh, um, we couldn't do that to renters, but we also recognize the pressures on landlords. And so that's why we came to this 2% that there is some, uh, some increase. We also um, are, you know, engaging with, with colleagues across the nation. Uh, other governments are doing uh, very similar things. So Nova Scotia is capping at 2%, as well as Ontario at 2.5%, because we see that this is, um, you know, not, uh, it's going to really hurt not, you know, renters, but at the end of the day, the economy, because if people can't afford rent, they can't afford to work in businesses. And so that, again, becomes, uh, they, they can't stay. Right. Um, and so that becomes a real, a real challenge. So trying to find that balance is not easy. I have to tell you, Simi, that that's not an easy thing to do. Right. But what about the uh, sort of unintended consequences of that then? Because one of the other things is that you need more rental stock just to begin with. Now, if renter, if, if landlords say, listen, if we can't keep up with the cost of doing business, what is the incentive there for more of that rental stock to be built? For sure, that, that's, that's certainly recognized. But we also know that, um, that over the long term, that, that these buildings um, become more valuable um, and um, that this is a short term challenge. So we have seen, even um, you know, certainly before this time, even when we eliminated the automatic 2% plus uh, inflation formula, uh, there, were, there were concerns that we wouldn't see as much rental stock being built. And we are seeing more rental stock being built than we ever antif- we've ever seen before in the history of this province. So while I appreciate uh, the challenges for, for, for many landlords, this isn't, this isn't um, I don't want to dismiss those challenges. I, they, are, they are real. Uh, we also believe that uh, until we see inflation settle out as, um, as, these, um, as the Bank of Canada does what it does, um, we will get to what I hope will be more normal inflationary time. Okay, so is there more to come on this? This is work that we're continuing to do. We certainly um, are looking at BC Hydro, engaging with BC Hydro. We'll have more to say about that uh, this fall. Um, and we're going to um, keep keep doing the important work around helping people around these significant challenges. This is just our next step. There's, um, there's certainly more to do as we see how things play out um, over the next number of months. Uh, let's talk as well about that BCGEU settlement here. I mean, are you concerned about having, there's a lot of settlements that are going to be coming or a lot of negotiations going on with public sectors. How tight or concerned are you about the budget? Well, I, I mean, I'm always paying attention to the budget. That's my job as finance minister. And um, certainly while negotiations are, are, are underway across the sector, I, I can't get into costing details uh, right now. But what I, what I can say is that it's a fair and reasonable deal uh, for employees, not just now, but across uh, you know the the entire uh, contract period that's three and uh, three years from now, um, and looking for a balance a, a balanced deal that that meets the needs of workers um, as well as looking at our fiscal responsibilities to the province and to the people of British Columbia, and that's uh, been um, you know what we've been um, presenting, um, and I'm I'm pleased that there's a tentative agreement, and I look forward to to uh, the ratification process. Okay, and when will when can we expect the next fiscal update then? Um, so in the next um, number of weeks, I have to, I'm going to be doing a, a quarterly report, um, uh, and uh, you'll get to see sort of where we're at. Um, that work is just being completed, and I'll have more to say about what our first quarter looked like. Um, You've probably heard from public accounts from the previous year um, that, um, that British Columbians um, did the right thing through what I would say is uh, the most difficult part of COVID, 
um, by, you know, getting vaccinated, um, making sure that uh, we can continue to keep things going as, as best we could, um, given the, the nature of the pandemic. And, um, and I'll have more to say about how we're doing in this current fiscal, um, uh, current fiscal year um, in the next, uh, next little while. Okay, so then what do you say then to people who say, look, this is not actually going to put money in my pocket. These are a bunch of measures. These are tax credits. But what about actually helping people on a, on a month-to-month basis? Well, it actually does go into people's pockets. We're doing one-time increases uh, to the climate action tax credit. So they'll actually get money, more money um, in their pockets. Uh, the same thing with, the, with the, um, the family benefit, the BC family benefit. There will be actually more money that will, that will be, you know, in people's bank accounts because we are spending about a billion dollars on all of these measures that are actually going to be in people's bank accounts. So it actually is dollars uh, that, that people will see that they can use to help manage um, increasing costs of, of food, increasing costs of school supplies, um, because we know that that's important. It's the same thing with the uh, Student and Family Affordability Fund. That's dollars that is flowing out mm-hmm. to school districts so that they can help families because they know families best in terms of who needs uh, additional support and will make school supplies available to those families that need it, help with uh, school meal programs. Again, making sure that that children have their needs met um, and that's uh, money that is flowing to people. Well, listen, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much, Simi. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, every once in a while, a new social media app comes along and I think, well, that'll never take off. And then it does. And I'm getting that feeling again about this new app called Be Real. It's rapidly growing. Like we are talking millions and millions of downloads Here's how it works. It's a platform that notifies all users at the same time, at a random time, every day. Then it gives you two minutes to stop, take a picture of your surroundings, and post it. The idea being that it's more, you know, authentic and quote-unquote real than a curated version of people's lives that you put on social media there. But is it actually real is this a good idea? Well, joining us now to talk more about it is Molly Roberts, technology writer with the Washington Post. Molly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You must have seen so many of these things come and go. Do you get that same feeling sometimes too? Like, oh, people aren't going to go for this. I was definitely skeptical when I heard about the idea of Be Real. I thought it was something people would maybe be into doing for a week or so and then get tired of. You know, I'm also a millennial and I thought, Maybe this will be big among members of Generation Z, but not so much among millennials. And it's funny now because more and more of my friends are downloading the app, too. So it's certainly only getting more popular. All right. So what are the concerns that you have? And I know you've written about this, too, where you say, look, let's face it. They say it's be real, but it's not really. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd describe them as concerns in that I'm worried that it's going to be corrosive to society or anything very serious like that. I think it's more that I'm a little skeptical of the idea that this app, which has real in its name, is actually encouraging people to be as real as it pretends. You know, I think that's for two reasons. One of them is just that it's a lot easier than it looks to kind of game the app. I mean, you have two minutes, so it's not just that you could kind of dash in two minutes to somewhere a little more interesting than when you're sitting right in that moment, but it's also that you can not do the thing within the two minutes, and you can post your Be Real later, and there's just like a little, you know, icon on it, notification showing people 
that you didn't do it within the two minutes. But, you know, basically that gives you all the time you want to curate the post. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is just that curation is kind of a natural human behavior. And when you're doing Be Real, you're sort of sending a signal that says, I am authentic, I am authentic, which maybe is more contrary to human nature than taking a little time to gussy up a post. Yeah, that seems to be the word these days, right? Authentic. And yet social media is really anything but. Are, are, is there more and more technology that is trying to get at that sort of authentic self? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And that's definitely the appeal of Be Real, right? Is that you can say that even though you are sharing your life, right? Nobody these days is able to just not share. That seems impossible. So even though you are sharing your life, you're able to say, I'm not getting sucked in to the idea of putting a filter on, you know, the, the, the no filter hashtag was kind of popular from the beginning on Instagram, because even as everyone is really attracted to these apps where we're necessarily going to be curating, they're also attracted to the idea that they can say, well, I'm not curating this, that much. This is kind of still me. And so I think that Be Real really plays into that. On the other hand, even on apps that we're more used to, like Twitter, like Instagram, like Facebook, People are trying increasingly to not apply filters to do on Instagram in particular what people call photo dumps, which is instead of choosing the best photo from your vacation that you've clearly worked really hard to pick, to edit, you quote unquote dump a ton of photos. And the idea is that that's a more accurate representation of what you were up to. Of course, you're going to be curating that in a certain right. way too. <laughs> that's what I was thinking too, right? Like all of this it just seems like another fad is like it gives people an opportunity to maybe even fake authenticity. Absolutely. I think that that's a lot of what we're up to these days and be real may have mechanisms built into that, that make it more difficult, but there's always kind of a way around it. And, you know, I think that a funny thing is we now have all these people waiting around all day, kind of ready yeah. to quote unquote be real. Right. So maybe you're going to put on makeup on a day that otherwise you'd be sitting on home. You wouldn't have put on makeup because you know, at some point during that day, the be real notification is going to pop up. Right. You're right. That's exactly it. And so Amal, well, the other thing too, about all these, these apps that come out is that we don't tend to think about any privacy concerns until it feels like after right barn door open horse gone. Uh, is that what happens here? Like if you're going to be posting, are you going to stop and think about, should I even be doing this at work? Yeah, I think people probably don't stop as much as they would. Otherwise, because they only have that two minutes, if they do want to not have the notification that says they weren't actually being real. So I think it's definitely true that if you are honestly going to follow the rules and take a photo of your face and then take a photo of what's in front of you and you're at your desk and you're trying to play the game they want you to play it, might show a work email in there, for instance. And yeah, totally, that could be of concern. I can certainly see people getting in trouble with their companies if there's any way that their company found out, if they're exposing confidential emails or email addresses. So there are lots of ways folks yeah. could run into trouble. In your line of work, then, Molly, is it even able? are you even able to predict at any point which apps are going to catch people's imagination and take off and which ones aren't? <laughs> I would not say that that is something that I'm particularly skilled at. There are definitely people out there who think they can. On the other hand, there are a lot of apps I remember from years ago where they were kind of trying to be exclusive by having invite only 
and I really wanted an invite. The idea was that the exclusivity would make it more popular. And then because they were so exclusive, they petered out. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this is the next big thing and I need to be in on it. And then it wasn't a big thing at all. So I think it's really hard to tell. I think it's kind of, you know, by the time that most people have heard of the app, it's already there. Uh, whether Be Real is going to last a long time, become something like Facebook, I don't know. But at least it already counts as a phenomenon. It has made it to that status. So hard to predict these things. Molly, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. Molly Roberts is a technology writer with the Washington Post talking about this app. Be real. She makes a good point. By the time we hear about it, by the time people like me hear about it, it's already taken off, as is the case with this one. It's got something like 30 million downloads. People are using it. And you know what's going to get really popular, but will it continue on? Because there are privacy concerns. If it does, like, would you drop everything if this app told you, stop right now, tell us what you're doing, post a picture of it, and that way everybody else is going to do the same thing so you can see what everyone's doing. But you know what? There are people to whom that appeals to. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, BC students heading back to class this week. Some of them probably still waiting actually to find out which classroom they're going to be in or which teacher they're going to have if the district is able to find them one. BC Teachers Federation says, oh, there's a lot of issues involved here, including our cost of living in this province, salaries that they say aren't high enough, which means that we have a shortage of teachers here in BC. Let's talk about what some districts are doing, though, to deal with that. Joining us now is Clint Johnson, president of the BCTF. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my pleasure, Simi. Thanks for having me. Are you hearing about this like right across the province, or is this situation worse well, in some districts? Well, we're certainly it's worse in some districts, but we're certainly hearing about this issue in every area of the province. It's true that you know a few years ago you would have only heard about it maybe in the rural and remote areas. Um, but this is certainly a province-wide issue, and it's just a matter of how severe it is in each district now. Okay, so how do you think, or what are you hearing about how some districts are dealing with this? Well, they have different ways of dealing with it. Um, unfortunately, the traditional way so far has been to try to deal with it uh, through stopgap measures by moving teachers around who are you know, already in the school. But that means a loss of services to students. It means teachers missing out on their prep time, which they need to prepare for their own class. So those are not great measures. But um, as you indicated, there's a couple who seem to have reached out to find individuals who are willing to come in and uh, fill that gap. Uh, But that means unqualified people. Uh, So I understand that they're trying to do that. But that also isn't an ideal solution for us. Well, yeah, I can imagine. What is the process for becoming a teacher here then, Clint? Can you be employed as a teacher in this province without certification? Well, you can be employed uh, as a teacher without certification. There's something called the letter of permission. Um, and they're, you know, they're meant to be used as a last resort sparingly um, and, and recognition that if you can't get qualified staff, then you need to, you need to fulfill your workforce needs. But they're not meant to be an ongoing, um, they're not meant to be, hello? Yep, uh, we can hear you. Oh, it's sorry about it, that. it's I, not I, meant I, to be. Um, they're not meant to be an ongoing way of dealing with uh, something like this. So there are things called letters of permission, and there are individuals around the province working on those letters of permission. Okay, so you're saying that there's going to be some exceptions made for some teachers. Now, does this happen in other provinces, like, or, or are other provinces not dealing with it the same way? 
Well, we do understand that the shortages in other provinces, I don't necessarily have the details on how they deal with it exactly, but we are aware that shortages across um, across Canada are not uncommon. So it is beyond BC, um, it's a problem as well. Okay, so what is the situation here then, Clint? Have we not been training enough teachers? Are there not enough spots? Like what is happening? Well, yeah, it's a combination of things. Um, we certainly don't seem to be training enough teachers in our own province. I know a few years ago, the government increased the number of spots available for individuals who want to train as teachers. But part of the other issue of that is, um, you know, those centres aren't all over the province. Um, and that can mean that people who live in uh, areas outside the metro areas might have to move for a long time from their community to get that training. Um, and then if they do, whether they ever go back to their own community uh, to become part of that workforce or whether they stay in the metro area. So we certainly aren't training enough, but also we're just not attracting any from other jurisdictions because, um, you know, our salaries are in the bottom half of salaries of Canada uh, for teachers. And we have undoubtedly one of the highest costs of living in Canada, if not beyond Canada. So you combine those factors. We don't have enough of our own trains and we're not drawing any from other jurisdictions. So this week, I know, is a, is a very difficult week for everybody kind of involved in the school system as they're juggling, getting things ready. What is the normal expectation, Clint, for teachers this week? Do they already have classrooms? Are they waiting to find out what their classrooms are? Well, for uh, most teachers, they'll know what their classrooms are. Uh, there's a lot of shuffling. Uh, you know, I'm not sure of your situation. I've had five children. Three of them are still in K-12, to so... Sometimes they know their courses are set. Sometimes they're still moving courses around. It's the same for teachers. Most teachers will know what they're teaching and mostly who they're teaching uh, with some last-minute shuffling around. Right, but there are some areas, right, where sometimes parents wait a couple of weeks to find out if their child is going to make it into a classroom or which one is going to yeah, be. That's, yeah, that's, that's definitely the truth. Um, and, it, you know, it depends on what course children are looking at or in the situation we're talking about, sometimes if there are not enough staff uh, to fill those roles at the beginning of a the year, then they're still working on that and trying to figure out how to fit children into each uh, class that they do have within the school. So there are places where parents and students will be waiting quite some time to find out where they're going to be. Yes. So what is your message then to the education minister and the government on this? Well, our message is pretty simple. We've been talking about this for a long, long time. You know, COVID certainly exacerbated it and brought it very much to the public's attention. But this is a severe problem and it's not a problem for the union. Uh, it's a problem for teachers, it's a problem for students, it's a problem for parents who deserve to have their children taught by well-trained, certified, uh, you know, well-supported individuals. So they need to make sure that our salary means that teachers can live and work in their community comfortably, and we need to train more teachers. That's it. All right, Clint, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sam. We appreciate it. That's Clint Johnson, president of the BC Teachers Federation. And I know for a lot of parents out there, it's not as simple as your child showing up, right, and, and being assigned a classroom. Quite often, you have to wait, and it's a stressful situation. I remember that happened once with uh, one of my kids when we when we switched school districts. I think we waited two weeks or more, and it wasn't even the school that we thought uh, he was going to be going to. Ended up at a completely different school that we hadn't even realized that he was going to go to. So yeah, it's a stressful time when there's shortages and you know students that need to be placed into classrooms. It's tough out there, and they're saying teacher shortages are just making this worse. If you want to weigh in with your experience of what's going on in the school system this week, love to hear from you on that, simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Also, don't forget this morning, we still have a great prize to give away here. We have a random trivia question contest coming up. 
and your chance to win a pair of Vancouver Fringe Festival taster passes. Why do we call them taster passes? Well, it's because they're perfect if you would like to graze the offerings uh, at the Vancouver Fringe Fest because these passes are good for any five shows at the fest. And you can just like figure out which ones you would like to go to and go see them. Now, the festival actually kicks off today at Granville Island. It runs from September 8th to the 10th at Granville Island. We could send you there with these taster passes. So two tickets up for grabs for that, but you have to keep listening to the show because in the next half hour, we are going to be playing that random trivia question contest and you could be off to the Fringe Fest. Now, also ahead for us on the show this morning, a couple of things that are going on. One, you've got the Prime Minister and his cabinet that are having a retreat here in Vancouver this week and the Prime Minister is expected to make an announcement this morning on affordability, inflation, relief for Canadians. We will have that for you as well. You'll hear it right here on 980CKNW and keeping an eye on the Queen's health. There's a lot of concern about this and we will take you to the UK and find out why coming up next. This is Mornings with Simi. 